I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Weller. Dr. Weller is a dermatologist and a professor at the University of Edinburgh. He studies skin, so he spends part of his time seeing and treating patients as a dermatologist and part of his time doing research on skin physiology and how UV radiation and sunlight affect what the skin does. So we talked all about skin health, especially as it relates to sunlight and UV radiation exposure. Obviously, uh, pretty much everyone knows that UV light is mutagenic, so it's a, a carcinogen that can increase your risk for certain skin cancers. It also increases aging, the aging of your skin. But there are actually many other things that sunlight exposure does via human skin. So we talked about those things, including many of the benefits. We talked about things like nitric oxide and vitamin D and the relationship between sunlight exposure and all-cause mortality and cardiovascular health and blood pressure. And there's lots of interesting stuff going on there and lots of good things that sunlight does in addition to the bad things that people tend to focus on. We also uh, talked about about the evolution of skin, what, what skin is doing, and what's sort of unique about humans as a primate species that is largely hairless. Uh, we sweat a lot, and this is an adaptation that allows us to get rid of heat, which allows us to be good endurance runners for hunting purposes and things like that. We talked about the evolution of skin color and why skin color uh, variation exists, why people from more northern climates with less exposure to sunlight tend to have lighter skin, why humans evolved a dark skin to begin with. It turns out apes actually underneath their hair are actually light-skinned. So human human beings uh, evolved dark skin initially, and we evolved lighter skin as certain populations moved out of Africa and up into more uh, northern latitudes. So we talked about all that stuff. What, what does skin do? How does skin health work? How does sunlight and UVA and UVB radiation interact with different aspects of skin physiology to regulate all sorts of different stuff? We talked about sunscreen and ta- tanning booths. We talked about you know what, what you need to think about in terms terms of the trade-offs, the risks and benefits of sunlight exposure. We talked about seasonality of sunlight across different geographic regions and lots of interesting stuff to do with that. The last thing we talked about too is immunity. So we got into some discussion at the beginning as well as at the end about the risk of COVID and how that relates to UV radiation and sunlight exposure, how sunlight actually stimulates certain aspects of the immune system and different aspects of inflammation versus anti-inflammation. So, you know, skin health is not something I've traditionally been super interested interested in. Um, I didn't realize how interesting the subject was and how much there was to learn until I got into some of the background reading for this. So if you're interested in skin health, as you probably should be at some level, this is a great episode with lots of information and a viewpoint that isn't necessarily the one that you hear most often at the dermatologist or just out in the public generally. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on the Mind and Matter podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Don't forget to check out the links in the episode description for how you can help support the podcast further. In particular, please check out mindandmatter.substack.com. I have a free weekly newsletter and various other benefits for those that subscribe as either free or paid subscribers. I've got long-form written content in addition to all the episodes of the podcast up on Substack, so please check that out. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can make 
mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure. And vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Richard Weller. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Richard Weller. I'm an academic dermatologist at the University of Edinburgh in, uh, in Scotland in the UK. I, um, my week is divided. I spend about half my time seeing patients and half my time doing research. I've been here for about, I think, just over 20 years now, actually, as an, as an attending and uh, an academic. Before that, I worked really over the place. I, I, I trained in London as a doctor, uh, started off doing my internal medicine in the UK, then went to Australia, where I did internal medicine up in uh, far north Queensland, up in, uh, up in Cairns. And I then came back to the UK after about four years of internal medicine training, and I started my dermatology training, which was um, in the UK, the Institute of Dermatology in London. And I then, a very lengthy process, you can see, got into research and um, did three years full-time research. I went to, I was in Germany, in, in Dusseldorf, and I was in the States, in Pittsburgh. And finally, um, after an awful lot of time, uh, uh, traveling there rather than getting there, I uh, I made it to a, a permanent faculty, a, a sort of um, uh, a tenured post at the University of Edinburgh, where I've been ever since. And so you're a dermatologist, so so you're interested in in skin. You treat people's skin. Your research is focused on some really interesting stuff to do with skin. Just to kind of give people a, a base of information here, can you talk a little bit about? skin on a basic level, the, the sort of cellular anatomy of human skin and how that organization will allow us to think about what it's actually doing? Yeah, well, I suppose really relevant to what my research has been is, is the skin is how we meet the environment. I mean, the skin is this large epithelial surface, and this is where you interact with the outside. So do your lungs, so does your gut. Those are the, the bits of your anatomy which are an interface between you and the outside world. And that interface with the environment really is is key to the uh, structure and function and the evolutionary adaptations of skin. Um, now, uh, I, I've worked in uh, various different latitudes. From here, I am in in Edinburgh at fifty six degrees north. Um, I, I worked down in Ethiopia. I might say also worked down in Ethiopia um, at times. And I was in Australia. I was in Pittsburgh. These are all very different environments that we humans have had to adapt to and they're very different in terms of uv of course because um homo sapiens us 
um, arose around 200,000 years ago. You know, we are the naked ape. Uh, we, we arose in uh, East Africa, Ethiopia, probably Homo sapiens around 200,000 years ago. And, and we evolved for a particular um, ecological niche. We are, you look at these endurance athletes, these iron men, easy peasy, you know, super iron men who do these mega distances and big, that actually is a deeply human thing to do. Where we differ from our primate cousins, and particularly from our mammalian distant cousins, is that we uh, became a good endurance athlete um, in Africa. You can't catch a cheetah, you can't catch a horse in a sprint. But over distance, you know, if you, we what we are good at is we can trot for a couple of days, just jogging along for a couple of days and catch those lovely, furry, tasty um, antelopes and morsels and things. Because what we have done is we have shed our fur and we have developed sweat glands, lots of sweat glands. But really, being, being naked and sweaty is what makes you human. That's the, uh, that's, <laughs> that's the particularly human feature. Sweating is the mark of, of, of man and woman. Um, and that allows us to shed heat. So... Other mammals shed heat by panting, and if you're covering distance, you can either breathe, um, you know, air in, air out, or you can pant. But you can't, you can't do both together. Whereas we can jog along mile after mile, day after day, um, covering ground efficiently, and we can sweat, and that sweating allows us to shed the heat that's generated from all the exercise in running. But of course, when you shed your fur, you you shed your protection from UV. And that has led to various evolutionary adaptations, which are also the mark of man. And those evolutionary adaptations have face challenges as we've scattered around the world from our African homeland. And it really, this is this is skin colour I'm talking about. So, um, you know, if you shave a young, lots of young primates, they actually have pale skin beneath it. And they might have dark fur, but they've got pale skin beneath it, particularly younger animals. The great expert on this, Nina Jablonski, is the real um, queen of this field of research. She's fantastic. Um, she's over in uh, Pennsylvania and has done lots of the research here. But we, um, having shed our furry UV protection, are then, of course, exposed to UV. And so the other real mark of humans is that we developed um, dark skin as protection against UV in Africa. So the other real hallmark of being human until very recently, until about 10,000 years ago, was having dark skin um, to give you UV protection. And that suited us well in our African homeland, where we lived until around, well, if you're not African, that's where we lived until 60 or 70,000 years ago. So... <clears throat> So there's a couple ways that, that humans are pretty unique compared to other primates and mammals. So on the one hand, we became hairless, and this has to do with our adaptations that enabled us to do endurance running, which allowed us to travel, which allowed us to uh, hunt, 
um, animals, types of animals, and and hunt in ways that you know other predators can't. So our hairlessness comes down. The skin also, in parallel, then must have had other adaptations related to the ability to sweat and stuff. But then at the same time, you're saying we went from uh, being pale skinned as our uh, you know on underneath the the hair of a chimpanzee or another ape, they actually have pale skin, and we became dark skinned because. You know, on the one hand, we were gaining this ability to do endurance stuff and to sweat and to get rid of that heat, which unlocked, you know, the ability to to hunt animals over long distances. But at the same time, you say that leaves us exposed to the elements, in particular UV radiation. So you got hairlessness evolving in parallel with um, dark skinnedness, and then. I'm really interested to learn more about uh, the, the sweating component of this. So physiologically, like what is skin doing to allow us to do things like sweat to to help uh, protect itself um, from the sun? And you know, when we when we're when we say that a dark skin phenotype has evolved, what is it going on sort of inside the cells and next to the cells that that is doing the protection? Yeah. Well, so first of all, I suppose the first thing is the is is the sweating thing. So, oh. I can't remember the numbers of sweat glands, but we have a great many sweat glands. And actually, those can be trained. So it, my brother-in-law is a soldier, and he was uh, did a couple of tours in Afghanistan. Second one embedded with um, you guys, with the uh, the Marine Corps. And what they did before they go to before they go out to Afghanistan is they go hot weather training first because it was really hot, and um and and you your sweat glands after a week or two can be trained to greatly increase the amount of sweat they produce hmm. so a sweat is an ultrafiltrate of plasma um that's why when you're sweating you're you know you need high water intake to make up for the fact that you're filtering your plasma through your sweat glands um and that evaporation of sweat from the surface allows you to cope with really high temperatures first of all high temperatures outside and secondly of course heat generation from inside from doing from doing exercise so that's the the thing about about sweat and if you go straight out um i can remember there was a tragic case i was watching a, of a of an of a, of a new york journalist who left new york in winter to went and accompany a british guy who was walking down I think the Nile from the source, and tragically, this American guy, fit, healthy, athletic guy, going from New York winter to top of the Nile immediately, and and died of heat exhaustion. I mean, a really tragic one. And that was a classic. The person he was joining had been there for weeks and months and was mm -hmm. adapted. His sweat glands had adapted to that environment. So that's that. The skin pigmentation is is interesting, and we've learned a great deal about skin pigmentation. I mean, particularly in European groups, but but it's the, the data is growing elsewhere. Um, in the last five or ten years, and we now are learning more and more about the genes which drive skin pigmentation. So there's there's a there's a number of genes. There's twenty or thirty genes which drive skin pigmentation, but actually, it's a few in particular which have got a big effect. This is in terms of uh, driving the pale skin variant of our natural uh, original dark skin, which is what man has been for most of the time. And and what we can see, so one of these genetic variants is called MC1R. So this is the genetic variant that leads to red hair. And if you look at genotypes around Africa and the world, there's actually been strong selective pressure to prevent the MC1R, the pale 
uh, red-haired gene um, developing the, the pale red-haired variants in Africa. So you can look at genetic variation. I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a biological informatician, but this is what the experts in the field say. And there are strong restrictions because, you know, genes are continually developing variants. You know, small mutations might be beneficial, might not be beneficial, selected in, selected out. And it turns out there's a strong restrictive control against those pale variants of MC1R arising in Africa. So there's been strong selective pressure to maintain dark skin until humans, which I suppose is a later part of the story, which we'll come to, you know, moved out of Africa and started ending up in places like here in Scotland and China and other places. So, yeah. And so, so, so there are these kind of like trade-offs. So in one environment in Africa, you want to have the dark skin pigmentation because you're exposed to lots of UV radiation and sunlight. Um, you also have, you know, you basically said that there's plasticity in the sweat glands. So you want to be able to have your sweat glands quickly adapt um, to the environment so that A, you can dissipate heat if you're in a very hot environment, pre presumably, you know, B, if you move out of that environment, you don't want to lose so much so that you can actually conserve heat. Um, and then you've got, you know, you've got interesting things happening, uh, presumably that we have not talked about. So, so why would, so if there's this restriction on the evolution of lighter skin in a place like Africa, closer to the equator, why is it that lighter skin evolves as humans migrate north away from the equator? What, what was the trade-off there? Yeah. And that's a really interesting, interesting question. And the first thing I want to say is we really amazing we don't really know that much it's kind of happened it's obvious you look around you can see it can't you but we're not really sure there's got to be evolutionary fitness gains to dark skin in a sunny environment because uh you know it, we've had two hundred thousand years of restriction maintaining that and there's got to be evolutionary benefits to pale evolutionary fitness benefits um, to pale skin in a low light environment, because that has actually happened independently by different genetic routes more than once. So hmm. the story goes that, so those of us who are not African are descendants of those small bands of Homo sapiens who left Africa around 70,000 years ago. And they kind of scattered around the world. So, you know, 50,000 years ago, um, humans are getting as, as far, coastal migrations getting as far down as Australia. 50,000 years ago, coming up into, up into Northwest Europe, we, we think, of course, there's been a, there's been a big ice age since then, last glacial maximum 30,000 years ago. So we've got very scattered bits of information only because the ice came back. 15,000 years ago, um, the original Americans um, crossed, you know, via Alaska and Beringia, and and then moved down into the Americas, arriving down at the bottom of South America about fourteen thousand years ago. And those were dark-skinned hunter-gatherers. So um, they they were the first people who scattered around the world. And then simultaneously, and really remarkably recently. Um, in the, uh, the Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia, you know, between the Tigris and the Euphrates, Euphrates and over, and then at this, about 10,000 years ago, and at the same time, around the Yellow River Valley, about 10,000 years ago again, um, in East Asia, in China, 
independent pale skin variants arose. And they arose at the time that farming arose in both of those locations. Mm. So East pale skin in East Asia, there's a kind of gradual accumulation of uh, this sort of paler skin. In particular, the dominant uh, genetic variant that leads to pale skin in East Asia is this Kittel G variant about 10,000 years ago. And the strongly under-selected for variant that leads to pale skin in Europeans arises in the Fertile Crescent. That's the SLC24A5 variant. And again, arises about the same time. And from... So what is interesting to me is that, and really we're kind of working on this moment. So actually, you know, humans had been at high latitude, well, since 50,000 years. Certainly humans have been in Europe since about 50,000 years ago. And they had been up in China from long before 10,000 years, certainly until 20,000 years ago. And also farming had developed in various places. So, you know, maize farming develops in uh, Central America, taro farming develops in Papua New Guinea. Um, it, farming occurs, uh, of course, in, in China, the, the, the Yellow River Valley, at the same time as pale skin evolves, is the development of pig farming and millet and then rice. In the Fertile Crescent, it's, it's sheep and goats and cows and wheat. So what's interesting is that pale skin arises in high-latitude human groups, low-light human groups, who are farmers. Hmm. And it seems that you have to have both of those things together. So the question is, you know, what is it about not just being at high latitude, but a high latitude farmer? So, um, and that really, um, to me, is very, one of the very interesting um, pieces of, uh, of information as we start to look at what the benefits of pale skin in a low light environment can be. Now, as a dermatologist, of course, the view on sunlight has been quite simple. Sunlight bad. Wear sunscreen. Don't get skin cancer. And, and of course, th that is true. Um, we know that UV, ultraviolet radiation, is the major environmental risk factor. And we've known this for um, really 100, 100 years. So... Um, it was it was first suspected that ultraviolet radiation sunlight might be a risk factor for skin cancer in the late 19th century um there was a uh, there was a, a famous dermatologist german dermatologist called oh, was it una god i've forgotten which one it was anyway who described zeman's haut who's got sailor's skin in hamburg back in the 1890s. Um, he noticed that sailors who live in a very high UV environment, sailing from Hamburg all over the world at sea, sunlight bouncing off the skin. And he noticed their deeply wrinkled faces with skin cancers, and he called it sailor's skin. And, and you know, it's noticed in America, doctors in Minnesota were not seeing the same skin as doctors in Florida. And within the British Empire as was, doctors in Australia who trained in Britain were seeing an entirely different kind of skin from what they saw um, in white Europeans in Australia. So it was suspected that UV um, might indeed lead to skin cancer. But the actual proof 
that UV uh, was carcinogenic was produced by Chuck Finley, a graduate of my university, Edinburgh, who 100 years ago, back in 1928, not quite 100 years ago, did the classic experiments where he shone UV at mice and they got skin cancer and the mice he didn't shine UV at didn't get skin cancer. That So that proved that it was indeed the UV rays, not the heat, not the diet, not the, you know, whatever, you, that caused skin cancer. So we've known for a, for 100 years that UV causes skin cancer. And that has been the message that all dermatologists have preached since then, that UV is carcinogenic to the skin, which it is. But of course, it forgets the bigger picture, which is what are the effects of UV overall on our health, not just the skin? And that's where I think the story's got very interesting. And that's where the story is is beginning to change and I think get more balance. Interesting. Um, before we dig into some of that, I mean, it, it's very, I didn't know this. I, I didn't know that um, light skin phenotypes evolved multiple times um, or that there's this connection with farming, right? So you have to get to a high latitude slash low light environment. And in addition to that, you basically have to become a, a more sedentary farmer compared to our hunter-gatherer ancestors. And it's those two things that seem to define the niche, as you say, that um, that causes or that allows the light skin phenotype to arise. You know, Especially thinking ahead to some other things we're going to discuss related to nutrients and things like this, does it have anything to do with diet, do we think? Do we know anything? Is there a connection there? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. Well, it, well, it could be. Uh, and, and that's one of the, because what we're now trying to tie up is these observational, I mean, oh my gosh, evolutionary observational stuff together with mechanistic stuff. What's the mechanism leading to this? So we're going to move on, I hope, later to my work about sunlight and cardiovascular disease. Basically, uh, sunlight appears via a non-vitamin D pathway to reduce cardiovascular disease, now the biggest killer in the world. My suspicion is, though, that in evolutionary times, I mean, I've I've never I've never run away from a saber-toothed tiger or chased a woolly mammoth, but but I have the feeling it's it's probably a better workout than the most expensive gym in the world. You know, <laughs> nothing like adrenaline or the fear of missing out on a good meal to make you work out faster, and no smoking and, a, and an active life. So I I suspect that while now uh, cardiovascular benefits uh, strike me as probably the biggest benefits to sunlight. I suspect in evolutionary terms, that hasn't been the case. So um, we're really looking at what, what other things it could be. So several things happen, as you say, when you switch from being a hunter-gatherer to a farmer. One is, is diet, interestingly, because you switch from, well, you have a more sedentary life, and you switch presumably to more grains. It is interesting that the earliest farmers were smaller than hunter-gatherers and appear, you know, it, it wasn't an instant gain. Birth mm -hmm. rates go up when you switch from being a hunter-gatherer to a farmer and probably perinatal mortality. You're living in communities. You're living very um, close by other people rather than being dispersed over the landscape. And the other thing is um, really, in, which which is one of the things that ties in with infectious disease. 
So most infectious disease is originally zoonotic. It comes from animals with which we're in close proximity. So, you know, COVID comes from bats, TB comes from cows, flu comes from chickens, measles. You know, there's a whole kind of series of animals and and uh, uh, bacteria and viruses which make that jump from one species to another. And they're particularly virulent when they do that. So probably infectious disease um, arose when we switched to being farmers because you're close by other people, so you can spread the disease around each other, and you're close to those animals that you are domesticating. And we've not really been able to see that for the last 100 years because we have fantastic treatments against infectious disease. We have the miracle of vaccination, which is the most incredible cost-effective effective means of I was in Pittsburgh, you know, the March of Dimes, the polio vaccine famously was, you know, Salk in Pittsburgh. Just life, dramatically life-changing stuff. So we have we have vaccines, we have antibiotics, we have sewers, we have <laughs> clean air acts, you know, all of these structural um in housing design and sewers and things, and and medical vaccines and antibiotics treatments have really removed infectious disease from us as something that we're conscious of. And when COVID came along, that became really interesting because suddenly here was an infectious disease to which we had no defences. Um, and we could see what happens with a new infectious disease um, as it arrives on a naive population, homo sapiens, um, who has not been exposed to it. So, um, we know that a lot of infectious disease is seasonal, you know, winter flu epidemics, colds in winter. There's a strong seasonality to, to many infectious diseases. And when COVID first came along, there's a strong seasonality to many non-infectious diseases too, which we'll move on to, cardiovascular disease in particular. But our hospitals are busier in winter than summer, markedly busier in winter than summer. And we just shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, it's winter, without mm. thinking why are hmm. our hospitals busier in winter than summer? But to head, I'll move on to that later. But heading back to infectious disease. So, so I was wondering if um, COVID would be seasonal like influenza is, you know, a respiratory um, airborne disease. And of course, at the beginning, you, you need 12 months to see seasonality. And at the beginning, you know, oh God, I have to wait a year, maybe two years, so the data is more robust. But but we um, realised early on that um, America, Johns Hopkins started collating all the data on COVID deaths within America. So America is fifty states, but it's three thousand two hundred counties. And the other, the great thing about America is it covers a, a huge geographical span. You know, it's the top to bottom is is a long way, and very different UV environments. And Johns Hopkins was putting out on its uh, COVID research database at county level COVID deaths within America. So these fantastic data sets. And I previously, with my cardiovascular work, had been looking at the epidemiology of heart disease and sunlight, stuff we'll move on to later. So I've been working with um, mathematical geographers who are very good using satellite data, NOAA. I mean, all these American, um, amazing American institutions we we uh, we use, and thank you to the American taxpayer for providing them. So anyway, so NOAA, great organization, 
produces this wonderful, uh, they've got algorithms that can tell you how much UV is falling on any spot on Earth, um, the wavelengths, the energy, everything else. And we've been using this for mapping blood pressure and season, showing how UV, how UV correlates with lower blood pressure. But I thought, well, look, could we do this looking at COVID? Because we have uh, COVID deaths at county level, um, and we have um, we can calculate UV at county level. So I got together with the mathematical geographers uh, here in Edinburgh. None of us ever, of course, meeting in person because it was lockdown, and we were all sitting at home like this. Um, chatting away. Now, to, to die of COVID, several things have to happen. You have to meet somebody with COVID. You have to get infected. You have to get sick. You have to, and, you know, and then and then you have to die. You know, so and and all of those are separate steps and separate risk factors um, affecting your likelihood of each of those steps in this pathway from being healthy American to dead American. You know, there's a lot of steps in that in that pathway. But you can actually pick that apart. So, so your risks of uh, meeting somebody with COVID and catching it depend on the population density. Well, you have population density at county level, clearly, if, and the amount of COVID in the population. So clearly, if you were living in Manhattan in was it 2020 february march 2020 when it first arrived in the states mm-hmm. and you're shoved into the subway and half the people there are coughing and hacking with covid you know you you are you are surrounded by covid if you're living in i don't know north dakota driving your your what do they call them you so you're driving your truck around you meet a person a week wave them through the windows you, you know and there's no covid so clearly very different risk factors but the data is there so you can you could calculate uh, population density, percentage of the population uh, who have COVID, public transport use, great web people meeting. So you can put that uh, calculation into your model. So that's your risks of catching COVID. You then need to look at your risks of dying from COVID. And we know that there are several demographic factors which alter your risks of dying of COVID. So ethnicity is one. Darker-skinned people had higher death rates. Hmm. Age is another. Poverty is another. Air pollution is another. And all of that data is there and available. So you can put your second correction factor is, which is to correct for your chances having acquired COVID, of dying of COVID. And the third thing that happens is, in New England, everyone wears a mask, because it's assigning me a good citizen. And Louisiana, I'm generalizing, and I apologize for all these exceptions. In Louisiana, nobody wears a mask because it's a sign of the devil. You have these huge, I'm afraid to say, political, uh, cultural differences in America. Mm-hmm. You also have at state level different policies, you know, Florida imposing very different policies to New York and so on. So you put in a third random correction factor, which just corrects for kind of differences. Now, I am not a mathematical modeler. The code and the mathematics of this are far beyond me, which is why we simple dermatologists are good at making friends with people that can do the hard number crunching. (laughs) But you can put in this model and you can build it up. And so what we then did was we collated and we cross-matched the deaths in the first three months of the COVID pandemic uh, in America. So I think it was January to April of 20. And we could plot, 
UV at each of these counties versus deaths from COVID, having done these really extensive corrections for confounders. And the final thing we did, I should say, is we excluded from our analysis the 20% of American counties where enough short wavelength UV, UVB, was falling to make vitamin D. So we wanted to show an effect of sunlight independent of vitamin D, because sunlight makes vitamin D, but not all sunlight makes vitamin D. Hmm. It's only the short wavelength UVB. And what happens as light comes through the atmosphere is that the more atmosphere it comes out, first of all, it reduces overall sunlight, but secondly, it particularly removes the shorter wavelengths UV. So in Scotland, where I live, up at 56 degrees north, there is no UVB to make vitamin D for six months of the year because that short wavelength UV is just removed from the atmosphere. And only really for the three months either side of June do we get enough short wavelength UV to make vitamin D. Whereas if you live down in the bottom of Florida, you know, you can make vitamin D all year long because it's so far south. So we looked at these counties and this uh, NOAA data, and we excluded from the analysis those southern counties um, where vitamin D would be formed. I see. So you're asking, what's the relationship between um, your outcome with respect to COVID and the amount of UV you're getting if there is not enough uh, UV around for vitamin D synthesis? Yeah. So you're, you're, you don't you want to look at an effect that's independent of vitamin D. Exactly. So there is a sunlight, not vitamin D effect. And what we showed really quite clearly was that there was a straight line dose-dependent relationship. The more UV, I can't say that you were exposed to, because we don't know what people were doing, but the more UV in, in your county, the lower the risk of dying for COVID. So we did that for America, great. But we then thought, well, that's great, let's do it again. So we then went to Italy, and mm -hmm. we did it in Italy. And we then went to England, not Britain, which includes Scotland, but we went to England, and we did it for England. Now, each and, and long story short, each of those countries, we found exactly the same relationship. We had to repeat the analysis for each country because the way we collate ethnicity, age, you know, the, the geographical units in which we collect that data are different in England and different in Italy. So it was, it was two independent and separate studies. However, they all showed the same thing. So the more UV where you live the less the risk of death from COVID. Hmm. So <clears throat> we um, we sent this in to um, an American journal, PNAS, and I have to stop fuming. He went, no, this is fantastic. We love it, really interesting. And they sat on it for six months and then changed, they said, changed their minds. And the science is fine, but it's not very interesting having sat on it for six months. That God, I was pissed. We were, um, <laughs> well, anyway, an American group, by the way, uh, from Harvard did a similar well did an, a similar analysis a lovely analysis which they did publish in PNS they submitted at the same time as us so they looked at growth in cases of COVID around the world um, and they looked at northern and southern hemisphere um, countries and they looked at growth in rates of COVID and they looked at UV 
and humidity and temperature. And what was great there was the southern hemisphere is turning to winter as the northern hemisphere is turning to summer. So, you know, it was a rather nice sort of... Uh, and what they showed was that the more UV there was, the lower the growth in COVID cases, but that temperature and humidity had no effect. Hmm. So this American group and we uh, showed less growth in COVID yep. and less deaths from COVID. And that temperature and humidity did not have an effect. That, that's interesting because mm. I was about to ask, you know, how, how much of this do we think could be light exposure per se versus, you know, how much of this is just an artifact of, of people spending more time outside in lower density environments when there's more sunlight around? Yeah. But the Re fact that, yeah. that that temperature doesn't correlate would suggest that that might not be the case. Yeah, I mean, really good question. And of course, always the fallback to epidemiology studies is confounders. You know, what are the independent factors? You know, a confounder, a factor which is independently associated with the exposure and the outcome. It is a behavioral due to temperature. So absolutely right, which you need to think about. Well, so what you need to do to... Um, prove it, to confirm it, is to then do an interventional study. And I was, there's a super, an American company called Cytokine, um, who then uh, ran a super pilot study down in New Orleans uh, last year, year before last. Um, and they took patients being admitted to New Orleans, the university hospital there, with COVID. And they ran a randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blinded clinical trial. So, you know, the kind of gold standard proper trial, giving UV phototherapy to half the patients who hmm. came in and giving a sham control to the other. Now, um, to, to be admitted into the trial, you had to have proven covid you had to be sick, as in your oxygen levels had to be below 94%. So that's you know, kind of sick, but not on intensive care. So you had to be sick, but not moribund. And, you know, by the time you've, you know, 300 patients come in, you'll see, you know, by the time you've kind of shift down inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria, consent given, they ended up with 30 patients. So 15 got UV phototherapy and 15 got control. And those that were in the active group had the standard American Academy of Dermatology, because, of course, dermatologists use UV phototherapy all the time to treat our patients. We're either telling our patients don't go in the sun or we're saying, can I give you some sun to cure your psoriasis <laughs> and eczema? We're funny people. And uh, anyway, so we, so we have these standard protocols for giving UV, this evil stuff, to patients to make them better. So they gave 15 of them, the, and of the 15 that were given UV phototherapy, two of the 15 died. Of the 15 who got the sham, five of the 15 died. Now, it's not big enough to be significant, but it's moving where you expect mm -hmm. it to move. And, and was that UVA only? Was it UVA and UVB? No, interesting. It was UVB. And, you know, we've, so there, a lot of my research. Uh, my cardiovascular research in particular, we've used UVA because it doesn't make vitamin D. And I've been keen to show vitamin D independent mechanisms of benefit of sunlight. Because dermatologists have grudgingly accepted that sunlight might have some small benefits. And paraphrasing the um the, the the sort of dermatology advice has been live in a cave take vitamin d supplements i mean that's those aren't the exact words but that's yeah. that's that's the kind of broadly the kind of feeling behind it because we know that 
vitamin D, well, you know, 100 years ago, again, dramatically, when rickets, osteomalacia caused by vitamin D deficiency, caused by either poor diet or lack of sunlight led to rickets, a huge problem 100 years ago. And that was dramatically um, cured uh, when, first of all, cod liver oil contains lots of vitamin D came along, and then vitamin D tablets. So this kind of, wow, this amazing, one of the first wonder drugs. Hmm. Um, and the problem is we haven't really moved beyond where we were 100 years ago, saying UV causes skin cancer. Thank you, George Findlay. And vitamin D stops rickets. Vitamin D made by sun, terribly good for you. And, and we've kind of got, we've kind of got stuck there mm-hmm. for a hundred years well, so, without so moving it on. I want to <clears throat> dig into vitamin D and skin for sure. Let's let's uh, let's put a bow though on the COVID stuff. So so wh- mm. sort of where do we stand with respect to sunlight, UV, and COVID? What, what would you say the overall summary is in terms yeah. of where? So, we- so I think. Yeah. So I think the overall summary is the epi- there is epidemiology that in areas with more sunlight, there is less COVID death. That tells you nothing about the mechanism. Is this an action of UV on airborne COVID virus? I think probably important part of mm-hmm. it. Or is it um, an effect on UV on us, you know, an effect on arming our innate immune system, for instance? We know that UV activates the innate immune system, um, and that's part of our defense against viruses. We also know, which we'll move on to, that UV mobilizes nitric oxide from stores in the skin into the systemic circulation. Now, NO, Nobel Prize for Medicine back in 1998, um, is this very important chemical messenger. It's a gas. It's a chemical messenger. Um, it's responsible for lots of the cardiovascular benefits of sunshine. But we also a fairly good evidence that NO prevents um, prevents SARS-CoV, the virus that causes COVID, SARS-CoV-2, um, it prevents its action. So the first bit of evidence is when the first SARS-CoV virus came along, I want to call it SARS-CoV-1, but it was called SARS-CoV because they didn't know there was a <laughs> bigger and badder brother coming along later. So when SARS-CoV arrived about five years ago, there was some really nice work showing that nitric oxide binds to it. It, it, it prevents the post-translational modifications that are acquired for the virus to bind to the ACE2 receptor. So if you expose SARS-CoV to NO, the meristylation which is needed stops it binding to that ACE2 receptor. It has since been shown that um, NO also prevents SARS-CoV-2. It's the spike, the spike protein that sticks out of SARS-CoV is what it binds to the receptor with. And it shows that NO prevents the meristylation taking place, allowing SARS-CoV-2 to bind to the ACE2 receptor. And there are several clinical trials underway of using nitric oxide to treat COVID. And some of the early data is coming back showing promise for NO. And sunlight releases NO from the circulation. So there's a number of mechanisms by which sunlight uh, might be reducing these cases and deaths from COVID. I see. So the, and we're plausible, working on that now. Yeah, there's plausible yeah. mechanisms there that are they're candidates for how this could be sunlight per se, um, rather than some indirect effect. Yes, yes. I'd say, my, and of course, at the moment, uh, what, we what site kind of working on is getting the, the the sort of backing to do a bigger trial on 
phototherapy to treat COVID. Because I mean, the thing about phototherapy, we use phototherapy. This is a treatment which has been around since the 60s. Um, you know, we've had we've had phototherapy for 60 years. It's in it's it's uh safe, um, inexpensive, easy to administer, almost, you know, whatever the mechanism, we have the treatment. So you know, we, we can work on the mechanism, of course, important to know, but but we have the treatment available now. It's just a matter really of amplifying up this small pilot study into a, into a larger trial of the use of, COVID, of, of UV for that. So I, I suppose you were asking me about infection, and this is really taking us full circle to here we have an example of um, an infectious disease, which so it, the data is good for... Um, you know, for, for, for sunlight helping us. Oh, and I, I should quickly come back to vitamin D. Lots and lots of observational studies showing that people with higher vitamin D levels are less likely to die of COVID. Two big clinical trials, both published in the British Medical Journal in the last two months. One study was using cod liver oil to treat patients with COVID. The other large study, and these are randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trials, you know, the kind of gold standards, was giving vitamin D supplements. And neither study showed benefits from oral vitamin D um, in preventing COVID. Um, and yet we have the observational stuff that people with higher vitamin D levels measured are less likely to die. And of course, a measured vitamin D level is, is a marker of sunlight exposure. Hmm. I see. So so the correlation there could be sunlight exposure. Vitamin D is just a marker of it, even though vitamin D doesn't have anything itself potentially to do with this trend. Well, the other question I, I was eventually going to ask you is, is there a difference between vitamin D supplementation or, or from the diet, exogenous vitamin D, and the endogenously produced vitamin D in the skin? Um, so yes, so vitamin D3, so the, uh, the, the, the dietary, um, vitamin D, we have plant derived vitamin D, ergosterol D2, and we have animal derived vitamin D and that the vitamin D we produce, vitamin D3. Always the importance when considering vitamin D studies, there's endless headlines, vitamin D stops this, vitamin D stops that. You have to pick apart the observational studies from the interventional studies. Mm -hmm. So, if you do observate, if you measure people's vitamin D levels um, and look at uh, associated diseases with those, so we know that people with high measured vitamin D levels are less likely to heart disease, less likely to have strokes, less likely to have diabetes, less likely to have rickets, mm -hmm. less likely to have And cancer. so this would be D3, measured inside D3, of yeah, 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 measured in you. So your, your D3 measured in you. The, the problem is, so all of those observational studies correlating high measured vitamin D3 with less disease are not proof of causation. You know, correlation does not equal causation, rule 101 of epidemiology. And there have been a mass of studies of vitamin D supplementation on health outcomes. And the biggest one is the VITAL study run in America. Um, and this really wrapped up about two years ago. So 25,000 middle-aged Americans were given oral vitamin D supplements. So, so were randomized into this trial. Half were given vitamin D supplements for five years. Um, and half were given a sham placebo control. 
and the results are coming out. And if you've got cancer, vitamin D supplementation seems to prevent it progressing. But in terms of heart disease, strokes, uh, blood pressure, diabetes, no effect mm-hmm. whatsoever. And, and in fact, this, in New England, yeah. Is yeah. this D3 that they're giving or D2? Um, exactly I, what is it? I cannot remember. It's. I think it was... I'd have to look at the papers, D3, uh, open access papers, New England Journal, but a New England Journal editorial uh, about three uh, July of last year. So 30% of Americans over the age of 60 take vitamin D supplements. And the New England Journal editorial rounded off, stop it. You know, it's we have no proven benefits for, for a multiplicity of these diseases. Obviously, it's important in certain cases, you know, osteoporosis rickets, we know it does, prevents mm-hmm. uh, progression of cancer. But a lot of those associations, it's not the vitamin D driving the reduction in disease. So we need to look again. So how much, you know, on the subject of vitamin D, animals produce D3, plants produce D2. There's this connection between UV and vitamin D in the skin that that pretty much everyone has heard about. How much is being produced? Is it? Do we get most of it from the diet? Most of it from skin production? Like, well, how does that break down? Well, a lot of it. Uh, uh, most, well, I suppose, it depends where you live. So, if you live in, if you live in Scotland in in winter, none of it's coming from sun. Mm-hmm. Um, if you uh, live in Florida, most of it's coming from the sun. I see. So it can go so, in either direction depending it, yes. on environment. And the other thing that matters is skin color. So mm-hmm. what we know is that if you have darker skin, you need more UV. So you know, for a, give, a given amount of UV, there is a lower rise in UV-driven vitamin D in people with darker skin. And this may well have been one of the drivers to pale skin as humans move to high latitude. Because one of the benefits of pale skin is that in a low light environment, you make more vitamin D. You, you know, you you make vitamin more vitamin D despite the low light. So that is one of the benefits. And also, just using vitamin D as a kind of biological marker of response to UV, it shows that biological processes driven by UV, those we know about, like vitamin D and, and nitric oxide release, um, uh, are. are occur better in low light environments um and and i'm sure the same applies to the mechanisms we haven't yet discovered uv driven mechanisms pale skin favors those in a low light environment and presumably that is what has driven this repeated evolution of pale skin in low light environments there's probably yeah there's probably i guess the idea would be there's probably multiple physiological effects of uv which the body can use for for good healthy functioning and vitamin D is one of them, but you know, the lighter your skin is maybe the, the more generally sensitive to these yeah. physical stimulators you are. Yeah. And there's then some really good epidemiology um, uh, confirming that. So um, a, a friend and colleague of mine, Pelle Linkvist over at the Karolinska in Sweden has done a, uh, analyzed the data from a wonderful study called the melanoma in Southern Sweden study. So this is a study that was started in 1990. And they recruited 30,000 middle-aged Swedish women. They took, it was actually a, a quarter of the population of um, middle-aged Swedish women. And, in 90, and they wanted to find out how much UV leads to melanoma and, and how does that kill people. 
So they recruited those 30,000 people and they asked them four key questions about sunlight exposure. So do they sunbathe in summer? Do they sunbathe in winter? Bizarre in Sweden, but they're bizarre people and some of them do. Do they go on foreign holidays? And do they use sunbeds? Now, now clearly, there are lots of confounders um, associated with that. If you you go on foreign holidays, you're richer, so you're probably better educated, so you're less likely to smoke, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they went in in great detail and corrected for all those confounders. So they asked about uh, education level, income. In Sweden, everyone's tax return is published openly on the Mm. same day every year. If you want to find out what your neighbour earns, you can look it up every year, or the Prime Minister. It's an (laughs) open publication. So they checked, uh, you know, health records, did they have diabetes, health problems, marital status, uh, alcohol, tobacco, you know, they they went in and corrected for all these confounders. And they then went back uh, 25 years later to find out who got melanoma and who died. And so you had a score broadly of naught to four, depending on your sunlight exposure habits. And what they found after correcting for all of these confounders was that those people that got the most sunlight, first of all, they got more melanoma on average, that there was more melanoma in the group that got more sunlight. However, the group that got more sunlight were half as likely to be dead as those all-cause mortality? All-cause mortality. They were half as likely to be dead, all-cause mortality, as those dermatological goody-two-shoes who avoided the sun altogether. So what? So so I think I think this is a related question that I wanted to ask anyway. Is what is the difference between? Um, so there's a correlation. Obviously, we know that we know that UV is carcinogenic. So there's obviously going to be a relationship to the skin. With, to, to the, the skin. skin. To the skin. So we know there's going to be a relationship between things like melanoma and sunlight exposure. How much of that is UV exposure per se as like one continuous variable versus how much of that is can you separate out those who get skin burns versus mm-hmm. sunlight exposure without getting burnt? And is that relevant here? Yeah. So really important question because not all methods of not all types of uv exposure are the risk so uh, my classic question to medical students here is that where is uh, melanoma commoner white australians or white britons the answer is white australians by the way just not to put you on the spot here nick my next question is who has the more melanoma outdoor workers or indoor workers Uh. and the answer I was okay, Nick. I'm going to put you in the spot. I see where you're what going. Do you think? I, well, I the 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 natural intuitive answer most people would give is outdoor, but I suspect you're about to tell us it's indoor. Correct, correct. I, I God, I'm going to have to try harder, aren't I? So quite right. So what appears to be the risk factor? So so when of course that as a question as as a epidemiological thing is is really dirty, and it do. Do self-selected people who don't have red hair and tend to tan well become outdoor? You know, there's always all the mm-hmm. observational studies, all the problems. However, the epidemiology really is that intermittent sunlight exposure, and in particular, sunburn, is the risk factor for melanoma. So that is the, and in fact, the World Health Organization now has classified melanomas into various types based on the epidemiology of sunlight that leads to them. So the melanomas that are so common 
now, you know, this rise in melanomas diagnosed, predominantly what we call superficial spreading ones, are now, are now classified by the WHO as low cumulative sun exposure melanomas. Because when you look at the skin around the melanoma, there are not the marks of long-term sun exposure. There's no wrinkling, there's no lentigenes, there's none of those marks. Now, some types of melanoma are caused by chronic sun exposure. This classic one that old people, they've had enough time to get lots of sun exposure, get on their cheeks, a site that is always exposed to the sun, called the lentigno malignum melanoma. But the melanomas which occur in youngish and middle-aged people, which are the main focus of our concern, tend to occur on the on the back, for instance, on the torso, on mm. intermittently exposed sites. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the real epidemic of melanoma we have now is intermittent sun exposure and sun burning. And is there rather so than I, chronic sun exposure? Yeah. You know, it occurs to me that I, I want to uh, potentially connect this to something that, that we discussed at the beginning. We talked about sweat and the fact that your skin can, is plastic. It can be trained to adapt to a local environment to produce more sweat if, in case you need it to dissipate more heat because you're in that warmer environment. Is something similar true with your body's ability to naturally defend against UV? And is there a difference between, you know, you know, if, if I go to uh, in Mexico next month for vacation and I just get out of the plane and I'm there versus I sort of slowly ramp up my UV sun exposure over, over a longer period? Is that is that important here? Yeah, well, of course, you see, we have an entirely different uh, pattern of UV exposure now to what our historical one is. So until 150 years ago, the Industrial Revolution our entire evolutionary history was lived outdoors. Um, you know, you, we were hunter-gatherers, then we were farmers, but we weren't sitting inside playing on our mobile phones or doing podcasts from an office somewhere. You know, we were... So, whereas now, whether it's going to Cancun on holiday, brief and very intense for two weeks, or whether it's being in an office for most of the day and stepping outside, mm. we are... So, so, actually, you know, here am I saying sunlight's good. Sun protection is also really important to us, sunscreen, because our pattern of UV exposure now is intermittent sun exposure, whether abroad or whether domestically outside our offices in the daylight, to which we are not, which isn't the ideal pattern. It's this intermittent burning exposure. So, you know, I say wear sun protection to, to prevent that. Mm -hmm. And just so just to be clear, is is it intermittent sun exposure or is it intermittent sunburn that is the key here? Uh, a bit of, I'm sorry, we're getting my sun is coming in there. Can I just quickly put you on mute one second? Because, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. One second, everyone. I think we're about to return. You're still on mute, Richard. Nick, my my apologies. Um, uh, this is the battle over screen. Having just discussed people playing on their phones, <laughs> this is the screen time battle with my my son. The uh, which I think um, has he done his homework. So um, yeah, so yeah, so so is it burn or is it intermittent? And it's hard to pick apart. You know, mm. it, we all we have is epidemiology. We don't really have good animal models for melanoma. Um, I see. So, so it but, could be but, either or yeah, both. It could be either. And, and I might say that there is good trial data showing that from Australia, 
um, where they have done good clinical trials of sunscreen. And we know that sunscreen prevents melanoma development. Now, whether it's doing it by preventing that intermittent high sun or the intermittent burning, mm -hmm. I don't know. But what we know is the sunscreen prevents melanoma. Okay, so there's so many things to talk about here. here here's where I want to take this. Um, based on what you've said, based on what I think you might be telling us, I'm wondering if this would be a good progression. Let's talk. So, so intermittent sun exposure um, is what we just discussed, and that can be bad. Um, what is your view on sunscreen? I suspect what you might say is you should definitely use it if you're going into a highlight environment for in intermittent exposure. But can you can you explain that to us, and then how that compares to the standard? advice I get from my dermatologist, which is I should always be in 30 plus SPF sunscreen on every skin surface, every single time I'm ever going outside for the rest of my life. Well, I, I, I uh, this is a complex question and I think we can do better with sunscreens than, than we do now. So I've been talking about melanoma and the concern with melanoma is that is the, that's the cancer, you know, most 80% of patients with melanoma are cured of it but 20% aren't. And that is, for me as a dermatologist, the bad news. And we know that sunscreen prevents melanoma. So that matters. Now, the studies showing that sunscreen prevents melanoma were done in Australia, which is a sunny place. But, but you know, that's this robust data we've got. I might say the other thing is that I think that information also applies to America. What one forgets is how much closer to the equator equator america is than the uk mm. so um you know if you if you are living in new orleans for instance for louisiana you are at the same latitude as north africa as as morocco or um algeria if you live in new england you're the same latitude as as the, the mediterranean coast of france of the cote d'azur you know mm. so you guys are living in a very sunny sunny environment and we know from the Australian data that daily daily sunscreen use prevents melanoma development by whatever mechanism. The other, so melanoma is the most important cancer because it's the one that kills most people. The second most important cancer is squamous cell skin cancer. The mortality is not as high as melanoma, but it's still there. So we'll go back to my Australian questions. Is SCC common in Australia or Britain? it's common in Australia. Is SCC common in outdoor workers or indoor workers? Over to you, Nick. Well, we said earlier that, that it was indoor, even though most people but would probably for, guess melanoma, for melanoma. Ah. Whereas for squamous cell skin cancer, the, the second most common type, it's outdoor workers. I see. And long-term sun exposure is a risk factor for squamous cell skin cancers. Mm -hmm. So those cancers are absolutely prevented by sunscreen. And do the mutations that cause cancer, are they coming from UVA and UVB or mostly? Yeah, they, 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 they are. So the direct mutations are coming from UVB, um, but UVA will drive a certain free radical generation that can cause different types of um, uh, mutations to DNA. So these two types of skin cancers, different patterns of UV lead to them. Um, but both, but both drive skin cancer. And of course, the other thing about um, skin and sunscreen is 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 sun is aging. So, 
Um, my my comment about those um, sun avoiding Swedes is, you know, who are twice as likely to be dead. They were beautiful corpses. You know, they had not a wrinkle <laughs> on them. But, you know, we know so so sunscreen will prevent your skin aging. It will prevent your risk of squamous cell skin cancers and it prevents your risk of melanomas. The problem is, is it also blocking the benefits of sunshine on other systems? And yeah. that I think is, you know, and that's what I've been, that, that's one of the areas I've been working on. Can we get sunscreens that will give you the benefits of sunlight whilst also preventing the harms of sunlight. Yeah. So can, can you start talking a little bit about some of these benefits? Obviously, everyone sort of just knows intuitively from experience, sunlight feels good. It can it can boost your mood. Um, and, you know, the, you know, we evolved from hunter-gatherers. We spent a lot of time outside. It makes sense that, you know, the cancer-causing effects of UV radiation aren't going to be the whole story. So what are some of the, the beneficial effects and what's going on there physiologically? Let me quickly close this door so the dog is not barking in the background. Hold on. Sorry, folks. One more short break here. This is part of being a podcaster. Right. Here we come. So, that, well, so I, um, I, I think the, the big benefits of sunlight now, I think the ones that are most important to us are um, cardiovascular disease. So um, I spoke about Pelle's work looking at um, all-cause mortality in these Swedes that get the most sunlight. And it turns out that the, the biggest cause of this fall in all-cause mortality was a reduction in cardiovascular mortality. So the epidemiology um, suggests cardiovascular benefits. And a lot of my work over the last 20 years has been working on these cardiovascular benefits of sunshine. So um, the, the mechanism which I and then colleagues in Germany have um, discovered is that the skin, so we, so we know that people's blood pressure is lower in summer than winter. So um, seasonal blood pressure in Britain is about six millimeters of mercury systolic lower in summer than winter. And we also know that people living closer, to, if you look at population blood pressure, looking at whole countries, the closer a country is to the equator, the lower the population blood pressure is. So we have, and from Pelle's work, we show that more sunlight, uh, less heart disease. So there's all this observational data suggesting that people in sunnier places or at sunnier times of year, or with behaviours that lead to more sunlight exposure, have reduced heart disease. So, and we also know that it's not vitamin D, because although people with measured high vitamin D levels are less likely to have high blood pressure, strokes, heart attacks, giving them vitamin D supplements does absolutely nothing. And doing what are called Mendelian randomization studies, people that don't make so much vitamin D, has no effects on heart disease. So, in, with my work, we showed that the skin contains large stores of nitrogen oxides, oxidized versions of this substance, nitric oxide. So it turns out you've got huge stores um, in your skin, in your dermis, in your epidermis. Now, nitric oxide was initially called endothelial-derived relaxant factor, discovered by uh, Bob Furchgott, an American Nobel laureate from NYU. And he showed how the end, so the the endothelial cells lining your blood vessels uh, release nitric oxide 
which relaxes your smooth muscles that line your arteries. And nitric oxide is essential for keeping your arteries relaxed and thus your blood pressure healthily low. And he showed this occurs via this uh, an enzyme called nitric oxide synthase, axon arginine, releases NO, Nobel Prize, boom, you know, one fantastic stuff. The way that nitric oxide, and of course, what was exciting about that was this was a chemical messenger, which wasn't a complex protein, which, you know, lock and key hypothesis fitted into an exactly matched receptor and turned on pathways. This was a, a simple gas, a nitrogen and an oxygen that kind of just dilated things. So an entirely new way of thinking about uh, signal transmission in the body. And the question then was, well, how do you turn it off? And it turns out NO's got a half-life of a few seconds, and it's oxidized, first of all, to NO2 nitrite, and it's then further oxidized to a, a, a further form nitrate, NO3. And nitrate, incredibly stable, thought to be inert. The idea was that nitrate's the end product, and you pee it out, and that's it. Well, that's where the... So the science for a long time was NO, just fantastic stuff, oxidized nitrate, you pee it out, and that's it all over. Well, we then found big stores of nitrate and nitrite and nitrosophiles SNO groups in the skin. And we're really wondering what they could do. But a couple of other researchers um, came up with some important work. So the first, I suppose the main one was uh, Martin Felish down in Southampton. And he showed that ultraviolet radiation falling on nitrate, NO3, in the presence of thiol groups, SH groups, will photochemically reduce that nitrate to NO. So actually, although we have thought of that nitrate as an inert end product, it can, be it turned can back. actually be taken back. And that came along just after I had I had found these big stores of nitrate in the skin, I was thinking, what's that doing? You know, I managed to publish it, but I really, and you know, when I submitted the paper, I wrote the usual cover letter. It's important. You must take this work in your journal. It's brilliant and important. And I was thinking, I don't know what this means. I don't know what this means. <laughs> anyway, the JID, um, uh, Barbara Gilchrist, God bless her, at the JID, Ed of the, the JID, accepted it. Um, and it was published, a very highly cited paper now, because we then, some years later, Martin discovered this photochemical. And of course, I was then hit by the thought, hang on, in the skin, you've got all these nitrate stores. There's lots of thiols in the, uh, the proteins that make up the epidermis. And UV, these three ingredients are brought together. And I could also remember from my internal medicine days and uh, th about the seasonal changes in blood pressure, and I also remembered from my time working in Australia um, about the fact they've got far less heart disease than we had in Britain. And of course, the Australians always said, you weedy poms, you sit around in your fat backsides doing nothing, and we're athletic super folk. And I discovered the, uh, the Aussies are as lazy and bone idle as the Brits. They are <laughs> no better or morally superior. It's sunnier. And they live three years longer than us. And it's nothing to do with their... Uh, athleticism or or prowess in that way so uh, all of those thoughts came together and we set about to do the experiments to show that sunlight can indeed release nitric oxide from these stores in the skin and lower blood pressure and i mean short story i did a ted talk on this which has had a 
a fair number of hits. Um, we, we showed that actually sunlight falling on the skin does indeed mobilize NO. It moves into the circulation. It dilates your arteries. Mm-hmm. And that accounts, I think, for these seasonal variations in blood pressure. And, and is that coming just from seasonal variation in sun intensity, or does it have specificity in terms of UVA, UVB, or is it both? Yeah. Yeah, these are really good questions. You could help write my next grant application. Yeah, so so when I did the experiments, I um I used UVA because it doesn't make vitamin D, and I wanted to say because you know for a hundred years we've said vitamin D causes so move away from the body vitamin D thing. So we used UVA um to show it was a vitamin D independent effect. However, uh, I did some observate. So first of all, there's some, the actual absorption spectrum of UV by these species is highest in the UVB range. So there's physical chemical reasons thinking UVB might be important. The other thing I, uh, I was working with a supergroup based in New York, the Renal Research Institute. So Fresenius run most of the dialysis units in America. And they've got a fantastic research arm, Renal Research Institute. And they have got 2,000 plus dialysis units all over America. And again, the size of America, you guys are lucky to have a large chunk of geography. Um, They collect data on all of these centers and dialysis patients have their blood pressure measured three times a week, week in, week out. So they have a shed load of data. They've got 340,000 patients on dialysis. So we were able, this was pre-COVID, this kind of, the, the, the methods here sparked off my later COVID research. So working with them, we were able to look at the blood pressure in 340,000 Americans on dialysis, uh, taken throughout the year, three times a week for three years at 2,000 centres. So at those 2,000 centres, we could go back to the good old NOAA and use their UV data. And we could cross-reference UV at each of those centers with blood pressure. We could account for temperature, because it's always been assumed in the past, oh, blood pressure is lower in summer because it's warmer. Well, actually, we showed that about half the variation in blood pressure with season is caused by temperature. Hmm. And about half of it is due to UV independently of temperature. But the point of that I'm coming to is we showed the fall in blood pressure for a rise in UVB was much greater than the fall in blood pressure for a rise in UVA. So it appears that UVB is more important in driving a reduction in blood pressure. That The other important finding was we had 340,000 patients of whom just over 100,000 were, were Africa, Black American, and 200,000 were white American. And we found that if you had dark skin, you had less of a fall in blood pressure with a rise in UV than white skin. Again, it's this story coming back that skin color is an, is an adaptation to ambient UV. And that if you've got paler skin, you are more sensitive, good and bad, you know, good blood pressure, vitamin D, bad skin cancer. If you've got paler skin, you are more sensitive to UV than if you've got darker skin. Hmm. So how do you think about sunscreen? What what are your sunscreen use patterns and what type of sunscreen? How, like, How do you think about all of these trade-offs? And I guess yeah. that that is part of the point that we'll probably make to people, I suppose, is it, it, there are trade-offs here. 
Yeah. Well, look, I, so uh, it, does my dermatologist side come first or my physician side come first? Am I thinking of the skin health or am I thinking of the general health? Well, look, what, what I'll say here is actually we, I think we can make sunscreen better. Um, actually, what I have done uh, is we have um, developed an additive you can put into sunscreen. So we talk about this nitric oxide release in your skin being being really important for the cardiovascular benefits of sunshine. And what we show is that sunscreen blocks that from happening. So we've done work and we show that if you put sunscreen on the skin and shine you, we've been used ex vivo um, bits of skin. We show that a, that a, that a, an SPF 50 blocks that release of NO, which is a good thing when the when sunlight hits the skin. So what we have done is we have developed an additive that you can put into sunscreen that does that nitric oxide release when UV hits the skin. So uh, I think sunscreen as it exists is good and bad. I think it, it prevents those skin cancers. It prevents that skin aging. My concern is that it also blocks the good stuff. But I think you can work around that. And um, I think the solution is to improve our sunscreens As and in, you know, put in something that will yeah. reproduce that NO release. So, so I guess that's, good, what I, that's what I wear. Okay. So I guess a good, a good bullet point for people is traditional sunscreen is going to block the effects of the sun sort of period. It's going to block the bad stuff, aging and uh, mutations that will cause skin cancer. And it's also going to block the good stuff like nitric oxide uh, having and vitamin, beneficial effects. And, and, yeah, yeah. And vitamin yeah, D. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. so like, what, like, so, you know, there's no, there's no universal answer here for people, but like, how, would you advise someone to put on sunscreen most of the time if they're in a sunny place, but get a little bit of exposure without sunscreen? Like, how should someone start to think about that? With the existing technologies, I think it's important to protect yourself from intermittent sun and sun burning, and sunscreen is good for that. Um, I mean, I, I should declare a conflict of interest that I'm actually working with an American sunscreen manufacturer, and we are working on, you know, building on my research mm -hmm. uh, to actually release what I think is the next generation of sunscreens, which will allow this nitric oxide release from the sunscreen as if you had not been wearing sunscreen at all in the sun. I see. So it would still block the UV it, in other it, respects. So you're not getting that UV damage to your keratinocytes. You're not getting DNA damage. You're mm -hmm. not getting the UV-driven free radical damage. So all of those bad things are stopped, but it's allowing the nitric oxide release, which certainly accounts for mm -hmm. um, uh, many of the benefits of sunlight. So, can you talk about how traditional sunscreen works in terms of, like, you know, physically, how is it absorbing or, or reflecting or whatever the UV radiation? And what is the difference between, you know, the so-called chemical versus physical sunblocks? Yeah. So, that, so there's two means. Uh, uh, there's two. Those are the two broad types of uh, sunscreen. So, the, so the chemical ones were the first one to. You know, the very first sunscreen, I think back in the 19, I think developed, I think, around the time of the Second World War was this Vaseline red, you know, red Vaseline that was smeared over GIs down in the Pacific. So, um, you know, it, 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 I think it was about an SPF of two or three. It wasn't much, but better than nothing. And of course, now we've got this amazing array of 
very uh, uh, beautifully designed filters that prevent sunlight. And broadly, the chemical ones, uh, they use a photochemical, different chemicals, chemicals absorb UV. In fact, one of the ways that chemists can tell, uh, can differentiate different chemicals is that UV absorption pattern. Um, so the, the, the chemical sunscreens absorb UV and different chemicals absorb in different ways. And there are a range of very cleverly designed uh, chemicals which will absorb those particular, particularly the UVB wavelengths that are problematic are absorbed by chemical sunscreens. The different filters absorb different things. So that's the chemical ones. Lovely lovely mm -hmm. bits of chemistry the physical sunscreens tend to be zinc and titanium and they just reflect it you know those those are kind of crushed up um and they just they just bounce that light back so there's a two different approaches the the industry is in a fair bit of flux at the moment in terms of uh, i suppose in, the industry in america is in a certain amount of flux and that will feed through to us in europe ultimately um in terms of um uh, the regulatory uh, things, you know, are the chemical sunscreens absorbed? If they are, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, they've been used for 50 years without people growing two heads using sunscreen. So I, you know, I, I my own feeling is that uh, people are too concerned about it because we've used these things for half a century without problems. Um, so, th so those are concerns which are floating around at, at the moment. Um, so there's a lot of thought going into uh can one develop better sunscreen filters without these problems interesting so <clears throat> um is there any concern about the chemical versus the physical having uh side effects that you know any of the like chemical compounds can get into your skin or anything like that yeah there's concerns about it how realistic there are they are i don't know so the there was a paper published i think in jama showing that a lot of these uh, sunscreens um the traditional filters are absorbed if you measure um in people systemically my feeling is we wouldn't know if we hadn't been told and that we have no we've never picked up a signal of sunscreen users developing I don't know, cancers or heart disease or anything else. So uh, after 50 years, you know, I mean, smokers die young and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people that drink too much die young. Probably. You know, we've, we've picked up exactly right. Haven't this? The, the other concern is um, reefs, uh, is, is damages to coral reefs uh, about mm. whether these. So uh, when I was working in Australia, I, I lived in Cairns on the, on the Great Barrier Reef. I was, and I spent a lot of time scuba diving out there and uh, re really conscious of, these wonderful ecosystems. The my own view is that the data showing that some filters kill certain types of coral polyps is that that is done at very high concentrations in the lab, mm. and that given the vastness of the ocean and the fact that people are clustered in a few small areas in small seasons, and that the concentrations will be nothing like as big. I mean, orders of magnitude lower than these tests are done. I see. So it's actually never I, I, been formally yeah. demonstrated that reef loss in the actual ocean is clearly related to that. It's just a hypothesis it, because in the lab, you see this stuff. In the lab, it does it. And of course, the great risk to reefs is not that. It's global heating. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that the temperature of the world is going up, the temperature of the seas is going up, 
and coral polyps are adapted to a very narrow temperature range, which is being exceeded. So, you know, jumping on your uh, jet to jet off to wherever um, with your reef-safe sunscreen, you know, the damage done by a sunscreen compared to the damage done by that flight is, you know, streets apart. I see. So so this new sunscreen that you're working on, can you talk about how it works? Is it filtering UVA versus B differently? Uh, yeah. So, so you, you have a sunscreen, which is exactly works exactly as a sunscreen does but it then has i'm kind of constrained by the the patent um into what i can talk about but but then it basically reproduces that healthy chemistry you know nitrogen oxides and thiols and uv meeting together in I the see. skin okay. so that, some that is reproduced the same ingredients are I as are in your skin because I was struggling to wrap my head around it. I was like, how does it allow the UV to do the nitric oxide thing, but not this other stuff? But there's there's something else in there that is chemically liberating that nitric oxide. Exactly right. And it's basically it's the it's the <clears throat> the substances which are in the skin are then in the sunscreen. Um so you're you're moving that chemistry into the sunscreen. So the sunscreen carries on being that protective barrier, but but that is also where the chemistry mm -hmm. and that then chemistry moves into the skin. And is that still in development? Is that something that's available? Uh, I am. We are in negotiations, and uh, we are hoping it'll be available um, in 2024. So, um, spring of next year. Interesting. Um, so we talked about COVID stuff earlier, and I want to kind of circle back to the immune system in general. Can you just give people a broad picture? Because I know that there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with sunlight yeah. and the immune system. What are the the basics there in terms of how sunlight exposure um, affects the human immune system? Yeah. Well, again, we are, we're starting off, I mean, there's almost a kind of line in research between observational studies which set questions, you know, this is the kind of big mechanistic, what's actually happening, and then, and then intervention, can you do a trial, can you give something, can you do something? So, so we start off with the observational studies. So um, some a, a wonderful paper published by a chap called Dopico in Nature Communications about five years ago, one of these fantastic uh, research projects where you don't do any of the actual data collecting yourself, a bit like Watson and Crick, you actually harvest other people's data. So they... <laughs> I, I won't call him lazy uh, because there was a lot of work involved, but it's, you know, the open access data is amazing. So they went along and they looked at the healthy control subjects in a number of studies that have been done around the world. And all of those studies had looked at gene transcription. They had looked at uh, whole blood or adipose tissue, but mostly whole blood and what genes, uh, where the, 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 every single gene which is turned on or off. And whereas the studies had been looking at, you know, I don't know, various things, diet or behavior or something or other, and this was then the control group analysis, they went and they analyzed the healthy control samples by the month of the year in which they were collected. So they were looking at these individuals that had the whole transcriptome measured at different times of year. And a number of studies in Britain and studies in Australia and studies in Iceland and studies in Ghana. And what they showed, so we all know about the circadian rhythm, your 24-hour rhythms, you know, your kind of sleep-wake cycles, and you know, this is turned on and this is turned off, and how you have these 24-hour circadian cycles. But it, what Dopico and colleagues showed was that 30% of your entire transcriptome, all the genes you have, 30% of them 
have a seasonal variation in expression. So mm. a third of your genes pretty well have seasonal variation in expression. It is a huge um, effect. And they looked in Australia and Britain. Of course, what was lovely is the British, you know, Britain June had to be swapped for, you know, it was the same as Australian, as Australian August. And they, they and broadly what was found was that anti-inflammatory genes are upregulated in summer hmm. and pro-inflammatory genes are upregulated with, you know, big kind of broad picture stuff. And the idea was that, you know, in winter, lots of infectious diseases flying around. So you turn up the immune system, ready to jump on infection. And then in summer, you want to turn off the, inf the inflammation because inflammation is bad for you. So in the, in the Gambia, it was the inflammatory genes were turned on in the, the uh, just just before the wet season when you need to get ready, and Iceland was all over the place, utterly scrambled. We shouldn't be there, um, you know. Sleep wake cycles, daylight hours, twenty four hours of light. Humans should not be in Iceland. So, but broadly, we have this kind of picture, and um, and then Anthony Young down at the Institute of Dermatology in London has given UV to people actively garnering given and again he has shown that UV drives a number of systemic uh gene effects and we currently here are looking at the effects of um UV on systemic uh immune and inflammatory markers because dermatologists use UV to treat inflammatory skin disease psoriasis and eczema my suspicion is that it's not just skin inflammation but systemic inflammation which hmm. may well be modified by uv so that's what we're really looking at now so you like so well let me ask you this this just occurred to me it, if someone lives in a high latitude environment you know i live here in seattle you're in england we're not getting a lot of uv for a good chunk of the year what would your what would your recommendation be if someone is interested in going tanning in a tanning booth? Is there a safe, a semi safe level of that if you if you're considering the trade offs or is that just something you would advise us against completely? Yeah, so we know that tanning salons are a big risk for melanoma. You know, they it's this intense, very intense sunlight. They are definite risk factor for melanoma. That we know for sure. That that data is pretty robust. But what about all-cause mortality? Because that's what we're coming down to. Mm. And in fact, we are working on a manuscript at the moment. I'm going to give a trailer for a paper which we're about to submit. So we've looked at the UK Biobank. So the UK Biobank is this prospective study where 500,000 people uh, were recruited uh, over about a five-year period, end of the last century, I mean, you know, funny five years ago, sorry, 12 years ago, and a mass of data were collected, a mass of behavioral information was collected. I was one of the subjects, you know, there was a three-hour interviews, and those half million people have been followed since then. And as more and more of them die, the data gets better and better. You know, the data, my epidemiologist friends get excited each year as it passes because the numbers get better. One of the questions they were asked was, um, hold on a sec. One second, folks. If you're ever negotiating as an 11-year-old, believe me, having your dad on a podcast is a strong, is a strong <laughs> position. 
Um, so we, um, so one of the questions asked about was uh, was uh, use of sunbeds. Now, sunbed users, you know, they they're not representative of the entire population. You have to pick about what are the confounders that go with it. We've pretty exhaustively looked at all of the corrected for all of the confounders that go with them. You know, age, behavioural things, every extent of sun. And we have some unexpected and exciting data, which we're about to submit. And I probably can't let you know on a podcast before I presented it at a meeting, although this does seem a very good audience. But I'll let you decide. So, I can already I can already tell what the answer yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, I can tell. Okay. So and now we don't know whether it's the sun beds that exert the effect we found, or it's a fact we think that sunbed users are sunbed use we think is probably a marker for sun seeking behavior mm. because we've looked at the sunbed users in every way and the effect we found is not linearly it's not dose response associated with some as in mild sunbed users are not getting less the effect than heavier sunbed users although we had small numbers in each so we're not getting a dose response suggesting it's the sunbeds themselves we mm -hmm. think the sunbeds are a marker for sun seeking behavior mm -hmm. And I'll let you guess what sun-seeking behavior does to all cause mortality. Yeah, it goes down. Um, well, so let me ask you this. So, I mean, there's no right or wrong answer. Everyone has to make their own personal decision at the end of the day after weighing the benefits and the risks. Um, well, let me ask you this. So, like, I am a light-skinned person living at a fairly northern latitude, and I also have psoriasis on my, on my elbows mainly. Um, I burn very easily. But would like would it be insane for me to to go into a tanning bed for like five minutes, like one day a week, or something like that? Would that likely produce benefits for me in addition to increasing my risk for melanoma? I think at the moment the answer is we don't have enough data. But yeah. look for psoriasis, we know that narrowband UVB is a fantastic treatment. It's safe. It's effective. Um, it's inexpensive. Um, you know, we know that that's a, a highly effective treatment. I suppose the, the truth is we don't have enough evidence for what interventional UV, giving you UV, is going to do to those others. And I think that's a huge hole in our knowledge because the epidemiology is so strong for sunlight having health benefits, particularly on cardiovascular health. The mechanistic studies, you know, we're showing this nitric oxide pathway really important. But me in Edinburgh, you in Seattle, you know, it's just grey and rainy outside, you know, all the knowledge in the world, what can we do to get around that? And I think I think we need to be, and I think we need to be moving beyond thinking about sunlight skin cancer to sunlight health. And what is that risk overall risk benefit ratio? Mm -hmm. the, and, and of course, the other thing I would say about Findlay, he was looking at white-skinned Europeans who had gone to Australia and India and Texas. He wasn't thinking about the reverse migration. You mm. know, th he was talking about people who had made an evolutionarily inappropriate move to somewhere very sunny. W what about people who've made the opposite move, for which we have mm. no research, no considerations, and who, in fact, are given pretty similar sun advice to those of us with pale skin? Hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, is there anything that you want to reiterate or just say again in terms of what we talked about, especially in terms of things that you feel are maybe like misconceptions about sunlight and UV with respect to skin health? 
Well, I, I think sunlight has has risks and benefits. And as a physician, risk analysis of risk benefit ratios is what I do every day. You know, whenever I prescribe, I was doing my excellent clinic this morning, all excellent patients. Whenever I prescribe a drug, I think the benefits, why I'm giving you this drug to make you better. And I think the risks, the side effect profile. I mean, almost that is the core skill of physicians. That's what we do. And we've completely forgotten that with sunlight, because when we talk about sunlight, all we talk about is risks. We we forget our physicianly, I'm addressing my physician colleagues here, I suppose, we forget our core physicianly skill, which is to balance risks and benefits. And all of the research and all of the thought for the last 100 years has been on the risks of sunlight without stepping back to consider the benefits. And that's a very, that's poor medicine. And I think we should be rebalancing things to look at it in the whole. Interesting. Well, this is fascinating stuff. Um, thank you for your time, Dr. Richard Weller. Um, I definitely, uh, before I started reading about some of this, I didn't know I was going to be uh, this interested in skin. Um, but there's, I mean, there's lots of exciting, exciting stuff out there. It sounds like there's probably a lot of stuff that we're going to discover that that we don't know about, or we didn't even think, we didn't even know that we didn't know about until fairly recently. Well, thanks. Oh, great podcast. Super questions, Nick. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.